This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for March 25th, 2019. In this show, I'll be talking about reforming America's public schools with someone who has strong opinions on the subject and a lot of experience in education as well. Let's hear what he has to say. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that, that unions are only there to protect you know, teachers' salaries and to collectively bargain. No, I'm not saying that they they're are, only they're there to do that. They represent the interests of the teachers, and the teachers' interests are not absolutely identical with the pupils' interests. Right, but I don't think they're. I, I'm trying to think of of what interests of teachers would be diametrically opposed to the interests of students. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who signs up for that. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think you can do the same as those people, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. I was really concerned to read about something called the Momo Challenge. This is a social media meme, a chain message spread on WhatsApp, Facebook and other platforms, which tells of a powerful internet message that could induce young people to harm themselves. Except it's not. The whole thing is a hoax. And that's not the bit I'm concerned about. Sure, stupid people make up stupid stories from time to time. What I'm really concerned about is the degree of traction this story got from people who should know better and from people who should know that they don't know better. The basic message was that by some evil technical magic, messages were being inserted into children's videos on YouTube, which would, a little bit like the film The Ring, make the kids go and commit suicide. In the UK, for example, school administrators warned pupils and parents of the danger. Major newspapers ran breathless stories of how dangerous it was for teenagers, and the Police Service of Northern Ireland issued an official warning, as did various local forces in the US. The RCMP in Canada said they were devoting resources to monitoring the situation. Not to be outdone, the French Ministry of the Interior said that it was reviewing the situation daily. Spanish police issued a warning to people, though it's not clear what they were being warned about, and Belgian police went so far as to say that it had caused the death of a 13-year-old boy. The BBC ran a story, which they've since removed, which claimed that forwarding the messages about the Momo challenge allowed hackers to harvest information, which technically is nonsense, probably why they killed the story. But the entire thing was nonsense. 
The only interest in this was cooked up by tabloid newspapers and a few higher-brow outlets who should know better, like the BBC. To be clear, responsible organisations who looked into this, such as the UK National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the Samaritans and the UK Safer Internet Centre, investigated and said that the phenomena didn't exist and there was no threat to young people or anyone else. So how did people get so worried that school authorities and even police forces were issuing warnings to parents? That's what I'm concerned about. There's all sorts of nonsense on the internet at any given time, but only rarely does a story break out into the offline world. I think that one of the reasons this story took off is because it sounds just about plausible to some people who are motivated to believe it. Obviously, the people repeating the story have a very low level of technical understanding of the internet, and that probably goes along with them being the sort of people not really liking the internet in the first place. So when a story comes along that confirms all their biases about how the internet was an evil and bad thing all along, that tells them what they want to hear. They want it to be true, so they don't analyse it critically. There are echoes here of the anti-vaccine movement also. The idea that young people are at risk from things their parents don't understand is a powerful motivator. You can almost hear the ghost of Maud Flanders saying, won't somebody think of the children? But my real concern is that in an age when engagement beats fact-checking, reality can become almost irrelevant. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. I'm joined on the line now by Mitchell Robertson. He's an associate professor and chair of music education at Michigan State University. He also writes for the leftist political blog, Eclectoblog. And on there, he was writing about Betsy DeVos and charter schools in particular. And uh, Mitchell, just for people who are not familiar with exactly how charter schools work, I know that you're not a big fan of them, but what are they supposed to do? Well, um, I, I think it's fair to say I'm actually a big fan of the initial idea of charter schools. Uh, charter schools began as an idea forwarded by teachers unions as incubators of innovation that would be teacher run and teacher governed. Mm -hmm. uh, so the initial idea of charter schools, I think, is a lovely one. Uh, unfortunately, that idea, I think, in the in the intervening decades has been uh, perverted, to be to be frank. And what charter schools are now are primarily ways that investment bankers and hedge fund managers can subvert public education into private bank accounts. So I, I think you know the the initial idea was a fine one, uh, but the further it, it got away from its origins, uh, the more problematic charter schools have become. Okay, so in the U.S., there are schools, there are private schools, obviously, that are funded by the parents, presumably, of the pupils. And there are public schools, which far more people go to, and they're funded by tax receipts, various types of tax receipts in school districts. How do, how are charter schools funded? What's the, where does the money come from? Where does it go to? 
Well, as you said, uh, about 90%, uh, a little bit more than that, actually, of children in the United States attend public schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, Charter schools are one uh, kind of sector of the public school system. Charter schools are technically public schools. Uh, The charter refers to an organization that provides them with a charter. Uh, It's very often a university or a college um, in the area, in the state uh, in which the charter school is located. But there are a few uh, charter schools that are chartered by public school districts, but primarily charter schools are public schools uh, that are are publicly funded Mm -hmm. but privately managed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the largest chains of charter schools like uh, KIPP, uh, which is all across the country now, and the Success Academies, primarily in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, the National Heritage Academies, which are throughout the Midwest and, and the Southwest, uh, those are, are charter management companies. They're privately owned, they're privately managed, and they take local control away from uh, from the public, and they, they imbue it upon a, a privately managed charter management company. Okay, so how do they get their funds? Do they just get a block grant or a per pupil grant from the school, from the local uh, local school district? Well, it does vary a little bit from state to state, but it's essentially uh, public tax dollars that follow the child. So if the if the state uh, tax foundation allowance for a child is say seven thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, either all of that or most of it, or in some cases more than that, follows the child to the charter school. In a wrinkle, though, there we have something in the in the United States called cut days or mm-hmm. count days, and they usually occur twice a year, once in October and once in February. And mm-hmm. those are days when every child in every school is counted so that an accurate uh, accounting can be handed into the state so that funding can happen. What happens in a lot of places, and this is really problematic, is that the children are counted on that count day. Uh, so if, if the child moves to the charter school one day before the count day, but it's in the charter school on the count day, the child's money goes to the charter school. And then there's kind of a weeding and sorting and pruning. Well, that well, happens wait, a- wait, wait a moment. Why, why is, I mean, there has to be some sort of accounting and surely they're as likely to move the day after as the day before the count day. The, right, is- but the money stays at the charter school. Okay. But, but the, surely swings and roundabouts in the end, that doesn't favor any one particular school does it? Well, if a child starts the this, this semester, uh, say in September, in the public school, mm-hmm. and then moves to the charter school on the last day of September and is counted at the charter school, and then that money goes to the charter school, and then the child returns to the public school because they've been expelled because they need special education services or they're a discipline problem, the money still stays at the charter. So I would say that, that in that occurrence, which is not rare, that does favor the charter. My knowledge of charter schools is pretty slim. I didn't actually go to school. I went to university for a while, but I didn't go to school school in the United States. And my most, the most of my knowledge about charter schools comes from listening to a different podcast, the uh, Gimlet Startup podcast, where they interviewed and had a very long series about uh, Eva Muscovitz, the, um, the founder of Success Academy. And she seemed to be an extraordinary personality and there were certainly many problems with what she's doing but I certainly felt that if I had a kid and my choice was between sending my kid to a very poor very low standard inner city school 
in a very deprived area of, let's say, New York, or sending them to a, one of her schools, I think I'd be fairly clear that I'd prefer going, them going to one of her schools. Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Um, first of all, I think we have to back up a step and ask why that public school in the child's neighborhood is struggling. Mm-hmm. And very often it's struggling because of the kind of twin uh, factors caused by competition in charter schools. So I, I would I would be bold enough to say that we're not going to fix the problems caused by charters and competition with more charters and competition. So oh, oh, this sure, is my sure, sure, oh, 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 no, Yes, yes, yes. But those, yep. those, those, not all, but a great many of those inner city schools in very deprived areas were struggling, as you put it, and performing very, very poorly long before those charter schools came along. Well, some of them were, and some of them, things have gotten a lot worse in the mm-hmm. intervening 20 years uh, since the Ed Reform Movement has really uh, raised its agenda and schools like Mrs. Moskowitz's schools have come along. Um, I would say that certainly public schools have not gotten any better. And one of the the uh, theoretical foundations of competition through school choice is that a rising tide lifts all ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, most ed reformers will tell you that the goal, one of the goals of charter schools is to improve public education. And if that's the case, that's been a crashing failure. The other thing they would say is that you might not be so happy that your child was attending a success academy school if you actually saw what happened in success academy schools, Mm -hmm. where especially children of color are treated with draconian discipline and are often made to behave in ways that um, I think most parents would not be comfortable with. So I'm not quite so sure that you would be that happy once your child was in that school. I, I actually agree. I think there would be a lot of things that I would find very problematic with that. But is it possible that that suits a niche? Because, and I don't want to make a stereotype of minority students or of inner city students in general, but certainly in very deprived areas where you have very, very high rates of uh, single parent families, where you have very high rates of perhaps single parent families where that one parent must work or where the, where that one parent has themselves a very low level of education, maybe uh, was initially a teenage mother and di- didn't have that much life experience. Is it possible that that level of discipline is useful in compensating for a lack of structure in the rest of the child's life, whereas perhaps with you know a, a richer kid, whatever ethnic background they come from, uh, somebody coming from the suburbs where they have a very uh, stable family life and very strong societal indications of how to behave outside of school, it mightn't be so appropriate. Is it possible that they're that they're appropriate for the the kids they have or for many of them. Uh, the kind of discipline that we see in a lot of the big charter chains is appropriate if you want to uh, put more kids in the school to prison pipeline. There, There's no uh, cultural or social benefit to treating children badly. So I would say no, uh, That that's not really a, a legitimate um, benefit to the kinds of charter discipline that we see. Not in all schools, but uh, as have been noticed uh, recently a lot in the Success Academy schools. And the other thing I would say is that uh, there are a lot of ways to uh, to instill a, a good culture in a school, and none of them have to do with treating sh- children shabbily. Uh, public schools have been using lots of innovative uh, behavior management and, and school culture uh, kind of approaches um, 
So in the, especially in the past five or 10 years, uh, just about every school that I walk into has some kind of very systematic approach to to how discipline and classroom management is going to be handled. And it, it doesn't involve children, you know, sitting quietly and folding their hands and walking in single file and not being able allowed, allowed to speak and using their hands to wave answers. And that's not teaching, that's training. What do you say to the the argument that however much you may disagree with that, the education in some inner city schools, don't want to generalize again, and I know that there are some that are good, but in some inner city schools, the education level is catastrophically bad. What would I say to that? I would yeah. say that's in many cases is absolutely right. If we go to Detroit, which is the largest big city to where I am, mm -hmm. um, the, the what's happening in the schools is is criminal. Uh, but I think, again, we have to back up a step and ask ourselves how that's happened. Um, it, that it's, it hasn't just happened in the last year or two. It's been a systemic defunding of schools. And you know, to go back to, to Mrs. DeVos for a moment, uh, about two years ago, Mrs. DeVos was quoted in one Mrs. of the Betsy papers DeVos, in Detroit. Donald, Donald Trump's education secretary. Yes, yeah. Our secretary of education is saying that the best thing to happen to Detroit would be to shut down the entire city school district. Uh, that's not what that's not what a, 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 a humane human being would say, much less the Secretary of Education. So when you have that kind of lack of financial support and that kind of lack of, of community support and foundational support, uh, it's, it's not really a wonder why the schools have struggled. But I would also say that if you want to find some of the best elementary schools and middle schools in the country, mm -hmm. go to our city centers. There are some great schools in downtown Detroit that are owned and, and operated and loved by the communities in which they reside. And that's something that is much harder to do in charter schools, which are not locally run and governed, but are usually managed by some kind of a charter management board. So I'm a big believer if we want a democratic education to work that the, the communities in which schools reside should be the ones that should be running those schools. And that's not happening in charter schools. It is happening in a lot of inner city schools. And since Mr. Vitti, the new superintendent of Detroit, has come in, there have been a lot of really good changes in Detroit schools, as I'm sure are happening in, in a lot of cities. Sure. But no matter how much you can point to individual schools that may be doing well, and uh, perhaps individual people who are making improvements, there is just a failure, a systemic failure of many, many students. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I would agree that a lot of places in, in big cities have challenging economic situations, but I would say that charter schools are not the, the solution. They're part of the problem. Sure, sure. Le leave charter schools aside for a moment sure. and just focus on the fact and you may well say that those schools are underfunded and that the teachers are paid poorly by US standards but you can go to countries around the world that are much poorer than the US and that have very similar problems with poverty and you can find schools that relatively speaking are doing much more with the money that they're getting there must be some acceptance that for mm -hmm. example Teacher unions who are resistant to change are part of the problem. Wouldn't you agree? Um, I think if you look at American schools, with with almost without exception, 
the states with the strongest teachers unions have the strongest schooling systems. Um, the, when I look internationally, the, 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 the examples that I see are, uh, for example, in India. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of uh, urban schools in India have now been kind of co-opted and taken over by third-party private organizations. And now, uh, I think this is about six years after that experiment started, the Indian government is coming forward and saying, you know what, that hasn't worked. You guys are out of here. We're taking back our schools. That's the kind of, of action that we need to take in this country about charter schools and about privatization and about vouchers. The same thing happened in Sweden. Sweden about 11 or 12 years ago decided that they would go full bore privatization and we're going to open up schools to competition and choice. And the government came forward about two years ago and said, you know, again, we made a mistake. This was not a good idea. And even the conservative politicians in Sweden came forward and said, this was our thought. This was our idea. It's not working. Let's go back to what we were doing. Um, I'm waiting to see some conservative politicians in this country have the courage to admit they were wrong. You are very critical of uh, Betsy DeVos in particular. What do you think her agenda is? What, she's, what in your view, is she trying to achieve? Um, well, I think she's been really clear about that. If you follow you know, her public statements, which admittedly are rare, uh, she has worked mostly in the background, kind of in the shadows of, of, of government and politics. She's never held an elected office. In fact, she's never had a job before she was Secretary of Education for the United States. Um, she's been very clear. Her goal is that she wants the church, and she means her church, the Christian dominionist church that she belongs to, to be the center of community life. She and her husband are very upset that public schools in many communities have become that center of community life. So I I actually believe that charter schools are just a way station for Mrs. DeVos um, on her agenda, that what she would like to see is basically two kind of parallel systems of schools. One for the children of wealthy individuals and the, and the people that have the means to afford tuition uh, and vouchers would, would help that greatly. And there, so there's one system of private and religious schools for those mm-hmm. kids. And then a system of defunded and under-maintained schools like the old Detroit public school system for everybody else's kids. I think she's been very clear about that. Um, one phrase that has been very popular really for 20 years or more is to talk about choice in education. What's your view on that? Um, well, first of all, in, this, in Michigan, where I live and teach, we have choice. We have legislation uh, started in 1996 called Schools of Choice. And children, with, with some uh, restrictions, families can, t- can have their child attend public schools wherever they wish. Uh, it's up to them to transport them there and back. But they, uh, a kid in East Lansing can attend schools in Okemos or whatever. Uh, that So we have choice. That's not what the school choice movement, um, as espoused by Mrs. DeVos, is about. She doesn't really worry so much about the choice part of it. She wants other people to pay for that choice. Um, I would also say that when you look at wh- how a lot of charter schools operate in terms of admissions policies with lotteries and other selective policies, uh, the people that have the choice are not students and families. It's schools. And we don't we have never had a school system in this country, a public school system, that gave schools the choice of what children to admit. So I think in, in most conversations we have about school choice, we're talking about a false choice. Um, one thing that strikes me, and I'll tell you my opinion, and maybe you'll give me your uh, your thoughts on it, I, I think that 
politicians who say that parents want choice in education are just plain wrong. No parent wants to choose the second best school for their kid. All parents want their kids to go to the best school. Now, some parents might be better able to have better social connections and be better educated to work out what that is, and some might be more motivated to do that. But it seems to me that that's just a false analogy. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. Um, when politicians talk about choice, what they're really talking about is a reappropriation of funds from from public tax dollars to private schools. Uh, it's it's that simple, and and they just don't want you to. It's a rebranding. I've come across this problem once or twice before. The podcast is called Challenging Opinions, but sometimes we agree, and that makes it more difficult for me to I'm challenge. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, the one other issue that strikes me, and I'll get your thoughts on this as well, is that there is a great variety in society of levels of education. And also, I think it, we would have to admit, there is a spectrum of motivation amongst parents. Some parents are very highly motivated to make sure their kids do very well. Some parents are not so motivated on that, whether that's because of the education that was available to them or for whatever other reason. But if you want really good education, isn't it necessary to make sure that the regular ordinary kids whose parents work regular jobs are sitting beside the kids of the millionaires and maybe of the billionaires because those people have political muscle and they have cultural capital to be able to influence how schools work and they're interested in making sure that their kids' school works well and if everybody goes to that school... Is that a, a model that you would think is a good idea? Well, I, I would say in general that uh, I, I'm not sure that there's such a huge range of motivations of parents in terms of wanting their children to do well. Um, I frankly have never met a parent who didn't want the best for their oh, child. Oh no, and I wouldn't suggest I wouldn't suggest otherwise. But okay. some are, yeah. know what that is better, and some may be more highly motivated than others. Well, and I would say that's what the promise of public education in this country um, has always offered. And when we do it well, what it's always done, um, you know, public education is is a little bit uh, the American system of public education is a little bit unique. And I think it's been a, a, a prime driver of the middle class in this country and of the economic prosperity we had when when things are going well. And what worries me is when I see um, challenges to that system that are based on accruing more wealth in, in smaller segments of the population and increasing income inequality. I think that's what charter schools are doing. There's plenty of research that, that suggests and actually shows that charter schools drive segregation uh, of both black and white students and rich and poor students. And in general, the best education happens when we have the most heterogeneous groupings of kids. When you have more able kids and less able kids together, when you uh, when you have richer and poorer kids together, those kinds of communities are the healthiest and those kinds of schools are the healthiest. And that's where all children learn and live the best. Let's accept that we are reasonably close to agreement on that. But there is a counterpoint. And the counterpoint is this, that in any 
system of production. And that's a very capitalistic way of describing education. But teachers are employees and they do a job. And any employee tends to do a job better when they have an element of discipline in whatever way that encourages them to do that. And that might be management that uh, is encouraging and that might be stricter sanctions if they fail. But in that system, where there is a single provider, maybe the older listeners know what it was like when you had the choice of one telephone company to get your telephone from. And it's unreasonable, surely, to think that teachers will not respond to the same pressures. And if they have no pressure on them to be good, then maybe some are just good by character, but some surely aren't. The management theory that you're talking about has actually been, um, first of all, it, it only applies to relatively low-level work in you know factories or uh, in, uh, in other settings. It's been shown um, over the past four or five decades not to apply in higher order thinking work, in critical thinking work. Um, so this idea that teachers will be motivated by, say, merit pay, that's an idea that's picking up more steam right now, um, has been shown by empirical research to be not true. Uh, you, you can't motivate people to do more by hanging a carrot on a stick in front of them who are already working to their max. Oh, that's, no, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very uh, a very blurred caricature of that. Management can encourage better performance in a whole range of ways. And yeah, you're right. Just money might not be what mm-hmm. it would uh, right. what would work for teachers. So what else are you t- what else are you talking about then? There are many universities teaching uh, whole PhD courses on management, and mm-hmm. there are managers in in very intellectual workplaces like law firms or in uh, software development firms, and they have a profound influence that the quality of the management has a profound influence on the quality of the product at the end of the day. It's surely not the case that teachers are unlike all other humans. Well, if you're saying a, a good principle makes for better working conditions for teachers than a bad one, yeah, mm. absolutely. But uh, what I would also say, though, is that that you know, a lot of times unions kind of are the the boogeyman in this equation. And what unions do is protect working conditions for teachers. And the better working conditions for teachers are, the better learning conditions for students are. So, yes, I think, you know, better administrators make for better running schools and stronger unions make for better running schools. And when teachers are treated with respect and dignity, students do better. Oh, hold on a second. Unions are just the teachers acting collectively and the, right. yeah the interests of the teachers and the interests of the pupils coincide often but not always well the the interest of the teachers are the teachers working conditions we've seen several teacher strikes this year west virginia oklahoma other states and in few of those places was the sole demand more salary it was always a whole plethora of, of requests for smaller class sizes, which directly influences how well students do in school. Uh, so I, I think it, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that, that unions are only there to protect you know, teachers' salaries and to collectively bargain. No, I'm not saying that they they're are, only they're there to do that, but, but they, they, rentress, they represent the interests of the teachers and the teachers' interests are not absolutely identical with the pupils' interests. 
Right, but I don't think they're – I'm trying to think of, of what interests of teachers would be diametrically opposed to the interests of students. One may be that school holidays are much longer in the United States than they are in most other developed countries. Uh, for example, um, Korea obviously is a very different culture. South Korea is a very different culture to the United States, but they have much, much shorter mm-hmm. school holidays. They have a shorter, they have a longer school year, but the holidays mm-hmm. are also distributed out. And there's pretty good research to show that long summer holidays are detrimental to the interests of pupils, particularly the weakest of pupils, and teachers like their long summer holidays. There's a conflict of interest. I I would say two things to that. One, the research on how much kids learn or don't learn over long breaks is almost entirely dependent on the measures, on the criterion measures that are being used. And when we talk about days of learning, that's, that's kind of a faulty criterion measure. So most of that research, while it's it's sexy and, and it, it gets headlines. It doesn't really tell us very much about how kids are learning. Um, the second thing is that most teachers don't have these, you know, ridiculously long vacations that, that everybody at the corner bar is complaining about. Um, most teachers are back in school over the summer themselves, earning advanced degrees, doing professional development, or working second and third sure, jobs. Sure, but the pupils aren't there. And, and the third point, but the teachers are getting better at their craft, and that helps the students. And the third thing is that teachers' unions all over the country, including the one that my wife works in, are, are working and are working with administrators and parents and school boards to have innovation about the length of school days, the length of school years. There are plenty of places where teachers' unions have agreed to either longer school days or um, alternative calendars. Uh, so I, I don't think it's fair to just say unions are against that because teachers want their time off. In a lot of places, teachers' unions are, are fundamentally involved in looking at innovations in how education is packaged. That's one of the things that Mrs. DeVos says over and over again is that schools haven't changed since you know the 1800s. And what I would say is Mrs. DeVos hasn't been in a school lately because schools are radically different both from years past and also in different parts of the country. So uh, this, this idea that public education is a monopoly or a monolith and that there's one size that fits all, it just isn't true. The district that we live in has a public Montessori school. There are schools in this area that go year-round. Uh, so this notion that, that public schools are a monolith and are slow to react to change is just false on its face. And unions are a part of helping us be more agile. Mitchell, if you could very briefly say one specific change that you would make to the public schools in the U.S. that would improve them, what would it be? Well, it it would be fully funding schools and getting uh, the education reform agenda, which has been largely uh, policed and suggested by people that have never taught a day in their lives, to just let teachers teach. Mitchell Robinson, Associate Professor and Chair of Music Education at Michigan State University, also writer for Eclectoblog. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Mitchell Robinson at MRobMSU. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. 
And also a thanks to everyone who's signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. You can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's April 1st, I'll be talking to author and reporter David Dayden about the rise and rise of the vaping industry. And that's no joke. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. <laughs>